Matthew chapter 9. As we read our New Testaments, we find out that God is a minister. In the strictest sense, Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be ministered to, but to minister or to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. And then beyond that, God is a missionary. He missioned, literally, his Son to the earth. For God so loved the world that he gave his Son to die on the cross for our sins. And his activity upon the earth is mission work. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Not only that, but Jesus' work on earth, besides being a minister, besides being a missionary, is that he was a cross-cultural missionary. Hey, talk about major cultural differences between heaven and earth. I don't think you can get any more diverse Being in the presence of angels, surrounded by perfection, surrounded by glory. Pouring out everything and coming to this earth. That is a culture shock to the max. Paul in the book of Philippians said concerning Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held on to at all costs, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even to the death on the cross. Very often we read those verses without remembering what preceded that verse. It talks about Jesus emptying himself And the word kenosis means to empty to the very last drop, like a pitcher would pour out its contents. We speak of Jesus coming, becoming a man, giving himself, humbling himself for the world. But the verse that precedes that, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Who being in very nature God, thought it not something to be grasped, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and became a servant. So he's the example of the master, servant, minister, slash, missionary, slash, cross-cultural missionary. And let this mind now be in you. He is your example. If you were to grab a Webster's Dictionary and look up the word mission, you'd find that the definition means a task that is assigned. A task that is assigned or to be sent on some kind of endeavor. To be sent out or to have a task that is assigned. Now let me tell you my background in missions. I grew up in a Catholic school. And my brush with missions was once a year we were given this little hexagonal box. I don't know if some of you ever had this or not. Some of you I can see are relating to it. It was a little yellow box with pictures of children holding hands all the way around the box. And the school called it the Pagan Baby Fund. That you put your dimes and your nickels and your pennies in this little box and you save it up and you give the box at the end of the month for the pagan babies. I didn't even know what a pagan was at that time. They called them the pagan babies. That to me was missions. Oh yeah, missions. Pagan babies. 
I've got the little box to prove it. Now, this is what the Bible means by it. Jesus said, as my Father has sent me, so send I you. Now, God the Father sent His Son to bring a message, a message of repentance, to transform lives, to bring the good news to a dying earth. To be sent out with an assigned task. As my Father has sent me, Jesus said, so send I you. Now I want you to begin thinking like this. Everyone in this room who is a Christian is in the ministry. It's not a profession. It is a calling that involves every Christian at some point in their lives. All of you tonight are ministers. All of you tonight are missionaries. In fact, if you're taking notes, you might want to write in your Bible or on a notepad, I am a missionary or I am a minister. I want you to begin thinking that way. Because the moment you stop thinking that way, the moment you stop thinking that I exist so that I can minister to others, this is what will happen to you. Your eyes will focus off of the harvest field and onto yourself. And then church will become for you one giant bless-me club experience. That's what it will become for you. It will just be a bless-me club. You'll come to church with this attitude. This better be good tonight. They better sing some songs that I know how to sing. Moreover, they better sing the songs that please me, have the right beat to them. After all, this church exists to please me, don't you know? Oh, and how wrong that is. Yet that is the attitude of so many Christians I find across the landscape of this country. They want to join a Bless Me Club. In fact, they even shop around for it. They have a list of ingredients. They check each box down the God shelf. They find if the church has those ingredients. But you are part of the church. And the church is one of those organisms, those organizations, that does not solely exist for the benefit of its members. In fact, you might say the church is the only society on earth that exists for the benefit of non-members. Not that the church solely exists for the unsaved. We exist principally for God and to build each other up. But as a group, as a society, we exist for non-members to see other people one to Christ. I have a friend who has a church, and as you walk out toward the foyer, he's got a sign over the foyer that says, you are now entering your mission field. Not speaking of the foyer, although in some cases the foyer is indeed a mission field, but the idea is when you walk out of the doors of that church, you've entered your mission field, whatever it is, whatever your sphere of influence is, whether you're off to a foreign country, off to a workplace, to school, to a family, a neighborhood that doesn't know Christ, you have now entered your mission field. And so we're all ministers. We're all missionaries of some kind. One of the tragedies of Christianity is that many either don't represent Jesus at all or they do it poorly. And I think that's because simply they don't know what to do. They don't know how to do it. They've been preached at week after week, get saved, get saved, get saved, get saved, but they've never been given any tools through expository teaching so that they know how to do it. And so at best they have a canned approach. And there are methods you can learn. There are canned approaches that you can learn. 
And in some cases, they work. It's just not me. I've never liked a canned approach. I've never liked knocking on the door and putting my right arm on Joe's left shoulder and kind of making the move the book tells me to and asking him a certain question the book tells me I should ask him. I'd rather just let it flow out of me spontaneously. Here's an analogy. If somebody is holding a full glass and you bump into that person, what will come out of that glass? Whatever the glass is filled with, right? If it's filled with water, water will spill. If it's filled with grape juice and he's sitting down and he has white pants on and you bump into him, you just might make an enemy. But whatever's in that glass, when you bump into him, will spill out. And so it is for a Christian. If your heart is filled with Jesus, and people in life just happen to bump into you at the store, or bump into you at work, or bump into you wherever, what should come out of that person? Jesus. He's a part of their life. It's just the natural, spontaneous outflow of a life that is connected to Him. Barna Research Group had an arresting kind of a quote. They said, 40 times as many churches in America exist as do McDonald restaurant franchises. That's interesting. 40 times as many churches in America exist as McDonald restaurant franchises. And see, we haven't even been sued for our coffee yet, so who knows? Yet he said, people for the most part see the church as an outdated institution with little or nothing to offer the contemporary person. See, I think it's that consumer mentality again. What's in it for me? Let's shop around. And so tonight, as we get into this study and then pray for these students, you might want to just take your own little test. And ask yourself, am I just a spectator in this church? Because if you're just a spectator, that means that you have that mentality of, I come because it's something in it just for me. And please don't get me wrong. We love to minister to you. It is our joy. I love to see the Word of God transform lives. I live to be able to share and teach the gospel. It is my passion. It is my joy. But there's a little book that I read by Hollis Green called Why Churches Die. Why Churches Die. And there's several reasons he lists. He says, number one, churches die because the followers, or excuse me, the converts, do not become disciples. The converts do not become, oh, they raise their hand, they shed some tears, they even get a Bible. But they don't become learners and followers on a daily basis of Jesus Christ. Number two, churches die, he said, because once a convert becomes a disciple, the disciples do not become apostles. An apostle simply means one who's sent out, not in the hierarchical sense of the word, just the fact that you're a disciple. But then you have a mission, mission possible. The disciple becomes one sent out, an apostle. Without that, he says, churches die. Now, that does not mean the churches stop growing with people or that churches don't build add-ons or new sanctuaries or get new carpet. 
But all of that is vanity. You can have a large church that's dead. The church can be dead even with a lot of people, even with a beautiful facility. The exciting part about a church is people turned on to Jesus Christ. Nothing else really matters. I I was always thrilled when we first purchased this building and our approach was, you know, it's a fixer-upper. As the Lord provides, we'll fix it up. Just like a young couple would start out and buy their first home. You don't go in over your head. You just fix it up as you go along. Well, some of you who were here remember that there was no drop ceiling, no lights. There were those big, huge lights that were in gyms. And we had those two hanging heaters that made so much noise. We had no air conditioning. We had no carpet, just asphalt after we tore up the AstroTurf. We had little bits of insulation hitting people on the head during the services. It was flaking around. It was like Rambo Christian Fellowship. It was rough. People refused to have weddings in it because you one, you know, one walk down this aisle with a white dress, it would be a, a gray dress with all the asphalt. And I loved it. Because those people who just wanted a nice, soft, comfortable, cushy place would be turned away. But those people who were just interested in worshiping God, they didn't care where they met. It could be a garage. They don't care. They just want to worship the Lord, hear the Word of God, and, uh, and get into it. And it was awesome. It still is awesome. I lo- Listen, I love this fellowship. I love all of you. It's a pleasure to minister. A few misconceptions about the ministry. And I've had you turn to Matthew 10, and here we haven't even got into it yet. Isn't that interesting? Well, let's get into it anyway. In verse 36 of Matthew 9, Jesus is with his disciples, and we read, When he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is truly plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And when he had called his twelve disciples, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. And then in the next few verses, the disciples are named in verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Now here's one misconception about ministry. And that is that the ministry are for super-Christians. It's the special elite kind of people. The special few. Those with special charisma, special giftedness. They're the super-saints. Let me tell you something. I've never met a super-saint. Ever. I've met people who think they are. They're prideful. Arrogant. They think they're something. They're indispensable. But there's no such thing as a super saint. Jesus, it says, took his disciples, a learner, a follower. We're talking blue-collar fishermen. We're talking nine-to-fivers. 
who lived by the Sea of Galilee, who went from paycheck to paycheck, or we should say net to net. They had no special credentials. They had no diploma. They had no school of ministry. They had no PhDs. They were a bunch of country bumpkins who followed Jesus, grew in love with Him as they followed Him, and followed His commands to be sent out. You know, churches have viewed mission work in a weird kind of a way. If you go to most churches, the idea of a missionary is somebody who's just a little bit different, you know, from the rest of us. It's not like the normal Christian. It's not like the person who's part of the normal church life. It's something that's just... And listen, missionaries pick up on that. They notice the distance. A lot of times it's encouraged because maybe at best once a year there's missions day or a special mission speaker, that's it. And so it is viewed because it is so seldom mentioned as something that isn't a part of normal church life. That's why I love it when missionaries come back and we bring them up here Thursday nights and they let you know where they're going or where they've gone. And it's more of a constant flow, a constant thing going on instead of every now and then. And I think missionaries pick up on that. They notice the distance that we put between us and them. They notice that the church doesn't always warm up to them like it should. They feel the distance and the tension. In fact, there's a story of one missionary at a special dinner given in his honor by his church. And he said before he left, quote, I want to thank you for your kindness and I want you to know that when I'm out there surrounded by ugly, grinning savages, I shall always think of you people. <laughs> a backhanded compliment at least. But it's the plain Jane that God uses. The ordinary dude that the Lord takes delight in choosing and using for His glory. That's one misconception. Another misconception is there are enough people in the ministry. There's enough. Or there's enough missionaries. We don't need any more people in the ministry. There's enough churches going on. I just tonight read a statistic that every year in the United States of America, 2,000 churches open up, open their doors, get started. 2,000 new churches. Now that sounds exciting until you hear the second part. Every year, 6,000 churches close permanently. Every year, 6,000 churches close permanently. You think there's enough? Think there's enough missionaries, enough lay workers, enough? No, there's not. Verse 37, look at what Jesus said. The harvest is truly plentiful. The laborers are few. That ratio has never changed throughout church history. It's only increased. It's only amplified. The harvest still is great. The laborers still today are few. Listen to how a modern translation of the New Testament puts that verse. There is much grain, but not enough men to go out and get it. I thank God for those who have left this church and started churches. Robert Furrow in Tucson, Kahn in Santa Fe, down in Roswell, up in Taos and Colorado and Arizona and different places. I thank God for the missionaries that have gone out. The radio broadcasts, which we see as mission teaching, going out through different places, but it's not enough. It's not enough. There's always room for more laborers in that harvest field. Now, what did Jesus say to pray for? He said, pray that the Lord would send out 
laborers, not superintendents, not bigwigs, not people who think they're something. Laborers. Hey, you can do that. I can do that. Anybody can do that. Just people who say, like Meredith was sharing with us, here I am, Lord, send me. I will serve in whatever capacity you see fit. So, the church exists to glorify God, to edify one another, but also for the benefit of non-members. Is there a need today for people who will serve the Lord, share the gospel, bear the good news in the ministry, in missions? Oh man, there's so much need. I heard this statistic. If you were to line up every unsaved person on earth, back to back, and make them form a single file line. That line would go around the earth 30 times. That line would go around the earth, wrap around the entire earth 30 times, and that line would grow 20 miles longer every single day. Every day, just because the birth rate of people being born in countries who've never even heard the gospel. That line gets 20 miles longer every day. There's a lot of grain, not enough people. Why? Why aren't there enough people? I think there's enough Christians. Believe me, I think there's enough Christians alive right now on planet Earth to share the gospel with everybody. I think the problem goes back to the consumer mentality. What's in it for me? This better be good for me tonight or I'm out of here. What's in it for me instead of that servant's attitude? Now in verse 36 and 37 and 38, Jesus talks about making a difference in that field, making an impact. It said, first of all, Jesus had compassion for them. You know, I'm always moved every time Jesus is moved with compassion. Are you? When you read about God and human flesh having compassion on people, does that kind of move you a little bit? Now, what was the thing that moved Jesus? Did he see them not well clothed, not well fed? He said, oh, you know, it's, it's that physical aspect that moves me more than anything else. Now, please don't read into that that I'm saying that's not important. But the thing that really got to Jesus is he saw aimless, shepherdless, directionless multitudes, like sheep having no shepherd. He was moved with compassion. The word in Greek, splankna, meaning the intestines of a person. Just like when somebody tells you a tragedy, you get that feeling in the pit of your stomach. That's the idea. Jesus was internally, emotionally moved with concern when he saw that multitude. And so, seeing the multitude, feeling compassion, he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the laborers are few, therefore. Now, I always like to stop, as you know, whenever there's a therefore. Therefore is a very important hinge word. Wherever there's a therefore, you must find out what it's there for. It's a connective word. Therefore connects the verse that includes it with the previous verse or verses behind it. It's an obvious contextual design. And get the flow of what Jesus is doing and saying. He sees multitudes. He's emotionally moved. He says something to his disciples about it. And then, therefore... Because I see the multitudes, because they're scattered, they're weary, they don't have a shepherd, therefore, here's the plan. This is how you make an impact. Number one, he said, therefore pray. 
Oh, that's interesting. What a different strategy that is compared to most mission strategies today. The church would say, therefore, go. Forget about praying. Just go. You see the need, go. Not Jesus. Therefore, pray. You see, you can do more than pray after you've prayed. You really can't do more than pray until you've prayed. It's the first step. You've got to get a little bit of direction from your commanding officer. Instead of just going out blindly, where, how, when, how long, with what equipment? You know, even Jesus taught that to his disciples, did he not? Didn't he tell these fishermen, go out into all the world and preach the gospel to every living creature? But then he said, but first wait in Jerusalem until you are filled with power from on high. Don't just go out blindly. You guys need a power source. You need a charged battery. You need the Holy Spirit flowing in you and through you and giving you direction. You wait first, and then you go. So first we pray. And folks, this is something all of us can do. This is something all of us should be doing. It's something that can be done by any Christian, and it's something that can cross any border. I've got two passports. Not because I'm a crook or anything. I have a passport for certain countries that are restricted to the passage of other countries. In other words, if I show one passport, they won't let me in certain borders because they don't have friendly relations with them. So I have two passports. In prayer, it doesn't matter if your passport is stamped by that country or not. You can invade that country's borders spiritually. You can pray for that group of missionaries who are over there. You can pray that the spread of the gospel would increase in that land by their witness. And you can start turning hearts. I was going to say upside down, actually right side up by prayer. So first of all, pray. And he says, pray that the Lord will send out laborers, literally thrust out laborers, kick out laborers. The idea is a little bit of force, not just, well, if you feel led, it's like, get out there is the idea. Pray that the Lord will thrust out laborers into the harvest field. Now, this is what I like about the story. Jesus sees the field, sees the need, says, disciples, come over. You see these guys? I move with compassion. Now, first of all, pray for these guys. Pray that God will send people out to them. Now, I must infer that they obeyed Christ. And I can sort of picture Peter, James, and John, a few of them together. Maybe Thomas is over there saying, oh, should I, should I not? But at least they're over there praying. You can almost hear their prayer. Lord, we just pray that you'd send people out there. You saw the need today. Send people out there. In chapter 10, Jesus sends them. He answered their prayer. A very interesting twist, would you say? You know that often happens when you get a concern for people. You offer your life. You pray for those people. And as you pray for that group of people or that culture or that nation, your heart gets stirred to even go yourself sometimes. You say, oh, I don't know if I want to then open up my heart to the Lord. I don't know if I want to pray. I don't know if I want to start regularly beseeching the Lord on behalf of a certain state or country. I mean, God might send me to Albuquerque or something. Or Española. Or Hobbes. Listen, there's a lot worse places, you might say. But actually, let me say this. If you ever get called there, you'll be ready and you will be willing to go. You'll want to go. You'll say, is that 
possible? To want to go to Espanola? Oh, yes, it's possible. God can move anyone anywhere. God can put a certain group of people in America, overseas, in your heart, and you'll love it. You'll love those people. And then He'll give you His Spirit, the power to be able to do it. You'll be endowed with power, filled with power, Jesus said from on high, as He told His disciples to wait in Jerusalem. So He told them to pray. And then in verse 5 and 6 of chapter 10, he tells them to go. And then finally, look at verse 7, he tells them to preach. As you go, preach. Yes, that's you. That's you. He didn't say, as you go, just pass tracks out. Though, tracks are great. It's a good open door. He didn't say, as you go, tell them to listen to... Christian radio. Or as you go, have them turn on Christian TV. In fact, in many ways I would recommend against that. Or as you go, just invite them to events. He said, as you go, preach. Nothing can take the place of your verbally sharing what God has done. He said, well, that's what we call witnessing. Actually, witnessing is not something you do. It's something you are. You are a witness. You are a witness. The verbal sharing of the witness comes naturally. It should. It's like bumping into that person with a glass. Jesus spills out. It'll just come up. As you go preach. You say, yeah, but no, no, no. I'm supposed to just live my witness. If I just am a good worker, I'm a good person. Well, that's a good start. You need to do that. But if you don't tell them why you're so different where they can get to know the God who changed your life the way He did. They have no direction. As you go, He said, preach. And then finally He told them to heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons, and so forth. In other words, demonstrate God's message. If you took a stadium full of people that could seat 50,000 human beings and packed that stadium full of 50,000 different people every night of the week for 35 years, and every night a 1,000 people was saved. 1,000 new people every night in that 50,000-seat stadium, every night of the week, every week of the year, for 35 straight years, by the time you're done, we would be further behind the task of world evangelism than the day we started. Did you know that? because of the natural growth, the birth rate, and so forth. But if you were the only Christian alive on planet Earth and you prayed to the Lord that if in 12 months you could lead one person to Christ and He answered your prayer so that in 12 months you and somebody else was a believer, a Christian. And then you two prayed that in year number two you both would individually lead another person to Christ so that after two years you'd have four and then 8, and then 16, the exponential increase would be such that before 35 years is over, there wouldn't be enough heathens on earth to evangelize. They'd be all saved. It's an awesome statistic. That's why Jesus commissioned all of His church to be in the ministry, to be missionaries, to share, to be effective. 
That includes you and me. I thank God for the School of Ministry students. I thank God for you. I thank God for this church. Let me tell you, I was speaking to somebody today who just said, and he is the uh, leader of um, a, sort of a local mission organization that reaches out into the prisons, and I've had many others tell me stuff like this. They said, we have more volunteers from your church who on a volunteer basis come to help out and reach out into the community, into the prisons, into the boys' ranches and girls and so forth than any other place. I just thank God for the volunteers. That's a testimony to you. And that's fruit in heaven that will abound to your account. But just a reminder, all of us are called with some sphere of influence. We exist not to be a celebrity, but to be a servant. God doesn't call celebrities. In His kingdom there are none. We're all servants of Jesus Christ. What a great title. And that means if you are His servant... That means that He is your Lord. And when He commands you, you don't say, I'll think about it. Otherwise, He's not your Lord. He's a bud. But for Him to be your Lord means that there's obedience. Remember Peter on Joppa with Simon the Tanner? The Lord speaks to him and says, as these things are being let down in a sheet. Simon Peter, rise and eat this food. And Peter says, no. Hello, Peter, rise, kill and eat. No, not so, Lord. I've never done anything like this. This is unkosher. Jesus said, don't call unclean and common what I have cleansed. Can you imagine saying, no, God, I'm not going to do that. Do we do that? Do we negotiate with Him? He's our Lord. Father, help us to be obedient to You in all that we do. Help us to see ourselves as those on a mission, a task that has been assigned. And I pray, Father, that converts would become disciples, that disciples would become apostles, And help us, Lord, to take up the banner. And Father, right now we want to pray for the students that are coming up. And Father, we pray that your hand would be upon them, giving them direction as they go out into this world. Now apart from the education and the hands-on experience and go out to serve you. Fill them with your spirit in Jesus' name. Could I now have the students of last year's School of Ministry come on up to the stage area? And the service is not yet concluded, so we'd appreciate you waiting around till the very end. All right. Yeah, give them a hand. Hi. You made it. You did it. Last year, I just was looking. Of course, you had your beard, Sebastian, last year. But last year when we did this at this time, 
these students were coming in and we graduated the next class and now these are the alumni and it's the reports that I have heard and some of the things that I have heard and seen and the changes in their lives is so rewarding. Let me just read their names off and um, Chris Armijo is going to be passing out the um, certificates to them and then we'll uh, pray for them and give them a hand after I uh, read their names off. Anna Arnold, John Benson, Kevin Bolton, Wolfgang Brandt. Did I say it right? We would say Wolfgang Brandt, but I know it's Wolfgang Brandt. (laughs) Alan Brooks, Jeff Dinkins, Sebastian Frappier, Kelly Green, Paul Hauser, Jeff Kramer, Jason Metcalf, Stephanie, how do you say your last name? What is it? Oh, oh, but how do you say that, the full thing here? Mylin Mock? Maylin Mock. Okay, Stephanie Mock. <laughs> Michelle Moser. Bob Murphy. Larissa Romero. Meredith Skelton. Dave Slade. Lori Estrada. Did I miss anyone? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these students. And for the year that has passed, all that you have invested in them, all that they have invested for your kingdom. Some traveling a long distance across the ocean from other countries, states. Yet, Lord, you said that even giving up homes and lands, that we would be rewarded so much in this life and in the life to come with everlasting life. Lord, I pray now that as your hand is upon them, that you would take and use everything that you have taught them that is profitable for your kingdom from this day forward. May your spirit, Lord, move them, continuing to transform them, honing them into those vessels of honor. Lord, I pray that they would never lose sight of being a servant for the sake of Christ in your kingdom. Lord, thrust them out into your harvest field, whether that means here in Albuquerque or back to their home state or wherever, Lord. 